it is good and right that sometimes we are moved to emotion and to tears when we sing. Our God is so knowledgeable of us that He knows we are built of body and mind and soul, and He wants to include all of that when we join together. Would you please turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 5? There's a question that I believe most of you have asked and countless number over the years have asked again and again. And that question is, God, what do you want from me? I have some specific times in my life where I've asked that question. God, what is it that you want from me? Sometimes individuals will ask this question when they're in a place of desperation God, what is it? What what is it that you want? What can I do? Other individuals might be genuinely seeking. Here am I, Lord. What do you want from me? It's a good question. It's a question that God puts in our hearts. And it's not wrong for us to ask it more than once. But the Bible is clear. The Bible points us at one place where Jesus Christ speaks, and He tells us exactly what God seeks from each one of us. We're going to take a journey today talking about worship, and we're going to look at different events that are spaced out over hundreds of years, and what was there at, at those times of worship and what was beautiful And what was amazing, and then how it faded. When we look into God's Word, we see a regular pattern of God making His glory visible to man, and then man allowing that glory to fade. Before we get to 2 Chronicles, let me back up a little bit further. God has always wanted for His people to know Him and to know how great and powerful He is. And when we look at God's family, when we look at when He established His people, the the Israelites, the Hebrew people, He began with a very, very small group. Of course, He started with Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. And by the time Joseph gets sold into slavery, it's about 70 that are in that family. And when God's people move from the promised land and they go to Egypt because of the famine, and Joseph has them brought there, and Joseph really saves them, they expand from about 70 people to between 2 and 3 million people in that time. God is blessing His people as far as their numbers increasing, but they are very much oppressed. And very much they could not see God. How many times do you think the question was asked among those people in slavery, God, what do you want from me? I have to believe it was time and time again. And as God wants to show them who He is, He doesn't start by showing them His glory necessarily, but instead God starts by showing them His power. Because God hears their call for mercy and for deliverance, and God calls Moses, 
He appears to Moses just by himself in that burning bush. And Moses is called to go and to deliver God's people from captivity. And God is going to demonstrate His power in ways that sometimes you and I are jealous about seeing. Don't you wish you could see God's miraculous power sometimes like they saw it in the Old Testament? The plagues is how it was demonstrated. God's power comes when Pharaoh refuses to let God's people go and he sends those plagues with the final plague being the worst one for Egypt and that is the time when we find the Passover taking place. And in just a moment, we're going to observe communion, which Jesus Christ took that feast of Passover and turned it into something for you and I today. The death angel would pass over the homes of the families that had blood on the tops and the side of the doors. The Passover they celebrated, and God's power was clear. But then as God's people make their way out to the wilderness, as they start to travel, it's at that point that His glory shows up. His glory shows up in a physical way. During the daytime, it was in the shape of a cloud, a pillar of cloud in the daytime, and they would follow that physical cloud. Do you remember what it was at nighttime? It was a pillar of what? Fire. They would travel day and night, and God revealed His glory to them in that pillar. And they could see that. There's a number of things that it did. For them, it it gave them great security. Look at this power of our God that is leading us. For the enemies, and the enemies back in those days are just like the enemies today. They would send spies to see this group of two to three million people that are going through the wilderness. And maybe they're coming towards somebody's land. And the spies would go and would see this miraculous leading of the people. God's glory revealed in the pillar by day and by night. You know, sometimes I wish God was more obvious. Sometimes I wish He just, you know, clearly told me in an audible voice or maybe even dropped a note from the sky. But I haven't seen God work that way. But you and I are able to see God's glory. Now, we're with the people in Exodus as they're traveling through. I want to fast forward. I want to fast forward to where they established a king. King Saul was the first king. And then came David. And when it comes to the glory of God, David observed that the glory of God was residing in that tent called the tabernacle. And David looked at his house all around him and said, I live in such a beautiful home, such a lovely house. And David had a desire to build a house for God's glory, a permanent structure for it to be. And do you remember, did God allow David to build that temple? Yes or no? No. He didn't. But David had a very key part in it being built. David's son Solomon would be the one that would build that temple. But before Solomon was even old enough to understand these things, David was accumulating the the materials they would need. He was getting the plans drawn up. He was doing everything that a person could do to prepare for a place to hold God's glory. 
Now, when we think of God's glory, that is a goal of what we are looking at today. We find ourselves right in the middle of a series that is called Church is Essential. We looked last time at what Jesus Christ said about the church. He talked, first of all, about what some call the universal church, all believers from all time and all places, or what we might call the family of God or the body of Christ. He talked about that. But most of the time in the New Testament, when we find the word church, it's talking about a church just like this one, an assembly of believers that have gathered together for specific reasons. Some of those reasons are to study God's Word, to fellowship with one another, and also to spread God's love, maybe through the gospel message, maybe through an act of kindness. These are main reasons why God has given us the church. Those are three, instruction, fellowship, and expression. And today we want to look at a fourth one, and it's where we start our study, and it's with worship. God seeks after our worship. That question, God, what do you want from me? We can say with confidence that God wants your worship. God wants you to join together with believers and have together worship. We like to say this in this way. We join together for a spirit-led time of worship and praise directed to our God in response to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, I am not naive enough to think that worship is not a sensitive issue in churches in our day. In fact, for the past about 60 years, worship is one of the most hotly debated topics that has come into the church. Most of you will be relieved to know that I'm not going to talk about the specifics as far as worship styles, worship uh, desires, things like that. I'm not going to go into the details of um, what we find in different kinds of churches. Instead, I want to go a little bit deeper. I want for each one of us to be able to connect with what God wants for us to bring to this time when we gather together. Now, I will say this, there seem to be extremes in worship. So you'll walk into this place, you might walk into another local assembly, and it might look very, very different. And they can, some are way, way over here, and some are way, way over here. And I think there are some places that we need to avoid. One extreme is the place of chaos. I won't go into too much detail as to defining what chaos is, because chaos might look to this person different than it looks to this person. But having said that, I think that when we gather together, we should not have individuals going off their own way, doing something that the rest of the group is not a part of. That looks like chaos. Maybe reminds us more of a circus than of a worship service. And that's on one end. On the other end is the idea of, I couldn't find a better term than dead orthodoxy. Most of us know what the word dead means. And honestly, who's exciting about coming to a place where it just seems like the most dull environment that there is? The picture that comes to my mind when I think of dead orthodoxy is this. It's like there's a train that we call worship that's going to leave, and it doesn't matter if anybody gets on or not, that train's going to go even if nobody's on or off the train. 
And that's not what we should want. That's not worship that's reaching our God. What can we learn about worship? Well, we looked at the Hebrew children when they first saw the glory of God in that pillar. Now David has the wonderful opportunity to see his dream come to reality. He passes away, but Solomon, Solomon finishes the temple. And that takes us to 2 Chronicles 5. And it takes us to the first thing that I want us to remember about worship. Unmistakable worship will involve mind, body, and soul. Now, we're just going to read a couple of verses in First, Second Chronicles 5 here, but let me go ahead and set them up for us. The temple has been completed. They're, the people are so excited for this. Israel has seen peace and they've seen prosperity. Solomon has just been a wonderful king for them in so many ways. And so now all the people are gathering for worship. Now, David was not at the heart of this, but Solomon was. And as the people are gathering, there's music, there's singing, there's instruments, and there is excitement. And I have to imagine they got, they got goosebumps like I get sometimes when we are in worship. And God's glory is going to be so clear. I think a main reason why God's glory was clear when the Hebrews were traveling in the wilderness was because that fire was so much contrasted by the black night behind it. And the cloud was contrasted by the blue sky that was behind it. And now when we come to 2 Chronicles 5, we find worship taking place and we find a contrast. Look with me, starting in verse 13, about halfway down, verse 13. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and musical instruments in praise to the Lord, and then the song, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house. Let's stop there. God's glory filled that temple. They joined for worship and God showed up to the point where the priest couldn't even go in there. And can't you just imagine for generation after generation after generation them talking about this? Talking to their kids that weren't there? Oh, son, let me tell you. Let me tell you what it was like that day. We rejoiced and we sang and God showed up and they couldn't even go in the temple. They couldn't even go in because God's glory was there. And they would look at that place as a holy place. Now let me, before we go on, we're going to fast forward quite a few years still, but let me give you a tool of the devil. The devil knows you well enough that if he were to show up and say, you need to take your God and just throw him out the door and not think about him anymore, the devil knows that would not work on most of us. Not a good strategy. And so instead, when it comes to God's glory and when it comes to worship, what the devil is shrewd enough to do is not say, get rid of God. 
But instead, the devil will say, let's add some things to God. Keep your God. Wonderful God. Look what he did at the Red Sea. Look at those plagues. He's a great God. But how about some of these things as well? This is the tool the devil will use in your life. And this is the tool the devil used in the temple in Israel. We're going to fast forward. We're going to go past Solomon's life. And in the history of Israel, the the kingdom is divided into two parts. There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The ten tribes of the north, the two tribes in the south. And that divide happened because of a sin, a sin of Solomon. Solomon's sin was this. He loved God. God gave him wisdom. God used him in incredible ways. We read the Proverbs and we're blessed by Solomon's kingship and his ministry. But Solomon chose to marry wives that had other gods. And Solomon did not take his God and throw him out. What Solomon did was he added other gods. He knelt down and worshipped other gods in addition to his God that he had. And so as we fast forward, the next lesson that we see is insincerity in worship does not reach God. Would you turn over to Ezekiel chapter 9? While you're turning there, let me give you some more history. Israel is divided into the north and the south. And then some of you who have gone through uh, reading through the Old Testament, you remember these times when it talks about the kings of Israel. And it gives the name of a king and it says, and he did what was evil in the sight of God. And then it names another king and it says, and he did what was right in the sight of God in the sight of God. And back and forth, and there were many, many more evil and wicked kings in Israel than there were good kings. And the other gods were allowed to share a place even at the temple in Jerusalem. And so God says, I've had it. Jerusalem and Israel is going to be taken over. You are going to be conquered and you're going to be taken into exile. And at one point, even the temple is destroyed. And when that happens, now, what did you see in 2 Chronicles 5? We saw the glory of God supernaturally coming to the temple. And it was there for a long time. So there has to be a time when it leaves. And that's what we find in Ezekiel. You see, Ezekiel was a prophet of God. It was not a very glamorous job. Everything that he saw was just miserable. God's judgment was coming. But Ezekiel, after he has been taken and he's, he's, he's closer to Babylon than Jerusalem, and he has a vision from God. And it's at that point that God shares with Ezekiel that my glory that is in the temple is going to leave. Some of you are familiar with an old spiritual song, Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle of the air. Anybody else know that song besides me? Raise your hand if you know that one. All right, that old spiritual song. Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle of the air. And that's been arranged to be very creative and and very pleasant to the ear. What in the world does that mean? Ezekiel saw the wheel. He saw a chariot with four wheels. And that's what is being referred to here when the glory of God leaves. Look in Ezekiel chapter 9, starting in verse 3. 
It's a vision of a chariot, very, very colorful and difficult vision. It says, now the glory of God, the God of Israel, had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. Now, that's all we're going to read. I'll give you chapters 8, 9, and 10 if you want to get a big picture of this vision, this chariot. But basically, Ezekiel sees in a vision that God's glory is no longer resting above the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies where it was supposed to be. But instead, now, God's glory is leaving and now is closer to Babylon. I'm going to ask you to fast forward one more time because the glory of God had left Jerusalem. And we want to see God's glory. What's God's plan for doing that? How is God once again going to reveal His glory to mankind? Would you please turn to John chapter 4? Turn to John chapter 4. And now is where we're going to find the answer to that question that so many have asked and likely you have asked, God, what is it that you want from me? When we look at John chapter 4, we have fast-forwarded to a time when uh, the Romans were in control of the area. Jesus has been born. Jesus has started His ministry. But this is right at the start of Christ's ministry. He's getting ready to do His earthly ministry. He's called some of His disciples already. But at this point, He hasn't really let anybody know who He is or what He's doing. And here in John chapter 4, we find the first one. The first one that was not one of his close followers that he lets in on what he's there for. And in this conversation, we learn what God seeks from not only that woman at the well, but from what God seeks from me and from each of us. Jesus Christ goes through Samaria which was a forbidden thing. I mean, it was unclean as far as the Jews were concerned. And Jesus Christ is going towards Jacob's well that was in Samaria. He sends his followers that he had called so far off to town to go and get some food. And then Christ goes by himself to this well where he meets what we refer to as the woman at the well. And as he encounters her, we must understand we wouldn't think anything about talking to someone of a, of a different religion or race or even gender, but in that day, it would be forbidden for a Jewish man to talk to a Samaritan woman, and yet Christ talks to her. Christ asks her for a drink. Would you give me a drink? And she's blown away that he would talk to her, and in that conversation, God in Jesus Christ's form, reveals himself as God. And he lets her know, I know things about you that only God could know. And then he tells her that he is the Messiah. I think it was an awkward conversation. I think that they were kind of debating a little bit and maybe at odds a little bit. And then when uh, Jesus tells her, go and call your husband, and she says, I don't have a husband. And that's when the power of God comes through. That's right, you don't have a husband. And the man you're, you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. And she, whoa, what am I dealing with here? 
what's going on here in this conversation? And I'm not sure if she changes the subject at that point or if she genuinely had a question about worship. You see, the Samaritans were not allowed to go to Jerusalem and worship. And so they worshiped on their mountain. And the Jews would go and worship on their mountain in Jerusalem. And so she asked the question, you say we have to worship in Jerusalem. Now our fathers tell us that we worship here on this mountain. I'm not sure how curious she was, but in this conversation, we learn about worship. In John chapter 4, look at verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. I have not found any other place in the Bible where God the Father is seeking anything from you or from me except for here in John 4. He wants your worship. He wants it to be real worship, body, mind, and soul. And what has taken place over the years with the contrast is still here. There was the contrast of the fire with the background of night, the cloud with the background of the blue sky. Now we have a contrast of a mountain over here and a mountain over here. And Jesus Christ says, I have come to do away with all of that conversation. Christ says God's glory is going to be revealed to men and to women, to Jews and to Gentiles and to Samaritans across the world. And they will all be able to worship Him. What is it that we should have when we gather together? One of our main objectives is that we have worship. And the worship that we should have in this place when we gather together still has a contrast. Let me explain what I mean by that. You can go anywhere in this world and people will get excited about an event, maybe a concert, maybe a gathering, maybe some kind of a movement. But at the heart of all of those things is a little bit of self for the people that are there. And when you and I gather for worship, there should be a contrast. So just picture this. Picture someone comes walking in to this place when we gather on a Sunday. And they see the singing. They hear the singing. They see us lifting, you know, moving our lips and moving our hands maybe. There is something different about the people in this place. You see, we do not gather together for self-promotion but we gather together to exalt the God who saved us. We see that when we join our hearts and our voices together because we have been changed. And what is involved in the worship that we do at this local assembly is a contrast because what individuals who do not know God should see is, are you ready? They should see the glory of God in our worship.
The God who knew you before you were born, before the foundations of the world were established, that God, should His glory should be seen when we worship. Because we don't just get together because we like that tune, even though it's nice to have singable tunes. We don't, we don't just get together because it's some kind of a crutch, and these people help me through a hard time. We join together corporately to worship, and they should see there's a change in us. And we're not singing this out because it's our favorite song or because we get paid to or because of any kind of self-promotion. They see the glory of God when we lift our voices. And this is a contrast to everything else they will find in the world. Together, worship means making the glory of God visible, and that's what we want to do. And it's something something of God, something supernatural about it. And before we come to the Lord's table today, which is another act of worship, I want to give you just some very practical uh, applications from this. What can you do with this? Well, first of all, remove yourself from the throne of your life and keep God in His rightful place. You see, I didn't say take down the idols because we don't live in a day where we've brought in a whole bunch of idols to compete with God. Instead, those things are something very self-centered. And we can just narrow it down by saying, I've put myself on the throne. When God's glory left the temple, it was when other gods were made equal. And some of you cannot bring good worship because God is not number one in your life. You can name one or three or ten things that are more important than God. And when you come to this place, you're thinking more about those things than about what should be number one. Remove anything from the throne of your life besides the one who has the rightful place there. And then just very practically, just participate. I know that it can be challenging for myself, I've, you know, been back and forth. I, I know every time I'm introduced to a new song, I, I used to always try to sing it out even though I didn't know the song, which wasn't really very good. And so I can remember thinking, okay, I'll listen to the first verse and try to pick it up, and then I'll try to sing it out. Sometimes we're learning something new, but you need to have a goal of participating when the family gathers together to praise Him, not individuals doing their own thing. And it's not something that's going to move forward whether or, or, whether or not anybody's on the train. Because what we have done with song, and even with our time in God's Word today, this is not something where the train was going to leave and nobody got on. God doesn't hear any of that if people aren't involved. God's glory is seen when we participate. And what a contrast that is. It should be visible when we gather for worship. It's a wonderful contrast, something visible in us rather than this self-centered world. Christ told the woman at the well, I've come to change things. It's no longer going to be about a place. It's going to be about something within you. And I imagine she worshiped the rest of her life in such a sweet and beautiful way. God wants us, when we gather together, to be doing something that looks like 
the glory of God, not in the form of a cloud filling up this room, but instead in the form of words, in the form of tears. And some of you worship today in a very, very different way than you used to. I'm not saying for better or for worse. I'm just saying some of you worship different today because you've learned something different of God's mercy in the past year. And that changes the way you approach Him. Some of you worship different today because you've had loss in the past year. And so when you come to these songs, maybe that you've sang before, you sing them in a different way because you're a different person. And God is so patient with us, even when we allow something else to get too much importance in our life. And we worship in a way that is special and is sweet. And we worship in a way that is individual. God wants that worship. What do you want from me, God? God wants your worship. And God wants your worship together. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, when we look to you, we thank you for knowing us better than we know ourselves. We thank you for the wonderful promise in your word. Thank you for the promise of eternal life. Thank you for the promise of mercy in this world. And thank you for your patience with us. God, I stand first in line thanking you for your patience with me. And as we come now to this time that Jesus Christ told us to come to, observing the Lord's Supper, we ask that you would bless it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.